The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're discussing human gene editing and talking about how far we've come in developing the technologies that make it possible, as well as exploring ethical considerations and future potential applications. My guest today is Professor Dagan Wells. They can accomplish the first comprehensive chromosome analysis in cells from human embryos at University College London, which actually earned him the ASRM prize paper in 1999. He's also served as faculty at Yale University. He's currently the director of Juno Genetics, a state-of-the-art molecular biology lab, and continues to teach and direct research at the University of Oxford. He's also the recipient of 10 major conference prizes at ASRM and SRAE, and he has been involved in genetics research for over 25 years now. Dagan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Let's jump right in. Last month, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Dudna for the development of a method for genome editing, specifically CRISPR. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about CRISPR, the Cas9 method, when did this first appear? How does it work? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, it's it's a fantastic thing, isn't it? The award of this Nobel Prize in uh, chemistry for this particular approach. It is approach which is in many ways revolutionary. Of course, we've been wanting to be able to modify the genomes of animals for many years and, and have done so successfully for decades now in order to better understand the mechanisms by which genes influence our phenotypes, influence development and all other aspects of everything that goes on in an organism, really. But certainly decades ago, or in fact, in recent times even, it was a major undertaking to look at just one gene. I remember when I was doing my PhD, there were other PhD students who'd spend the entirety of their postdoctoral uh, studies uh, of their PhD studies, uh, trying to knock out a single gene to then understand what it might do. And people dedicated years and years of their lives to this sort of thing. Uh, but with the advent of genome editing technologies such as CRISPR, it's possible to do these kinds of interventions in just a matter of weeks, really. And uh, so it's, it, it is a, a massive sea change in the way that we can do these kinds of um, experiments. So, I mean, the ideas behind CRISPR have been really around since the late 1980s. That's when these kinds of mechanisms were first identified. And I guess they really took off around 2012. That's when the first patents were filed and the first commercialization of CRISPR processes began. In terms of what they actually are, well, uh, CRISPR is, I guess you could say it's a way of uh, interacting with the genome in a very precise and targeted manner. And the way that this 
typically occurs is by introducing a breakage in the DNA strand in a site that's of interest to us. So the amazing thing about CRISPR, I guess, is this ability to target, to, to just identify one part of the genome that you want to um, maybe break the DNA strand at that position and, and to do so with high efficiency and without accidentally cutting other parts of the genome as well. And the way that that works is that you have a, a, an enzyme called Cas9, whose uh, ability is to uh, break the DNA strand, but you can guide that to the site in the genome that you want to break using a guide RNA. So that's a, a piece of nucleic acid, which uses complementary base pairing to target a particular area of the genome. So, you know, as you know, the DNA is double-stranded molecule. And the reason those two strands stick together is that there's complementarity between the bases of the DNA, those Gs, As, Ts, and Cs. It's the same thing with, uh, with the CRISPR. Uh, the guide RNA has a complementary series of Gs, As, Ts, and Cs, or actually Us rather than Ts in RNA, which actually takes it to the piece of DNA that you're interested in. It will then sort of bind there, anneal there, and the Cas9, which has been brought into the vicinity of that particular area, will then cut the DNA in a very precise and predictable way. So, yeah, there's been various other genome editing methods that have preceded uh, CRISPR. It didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, so before that, we had zinc finger uh, proteins. We had something called talons, which each had the ability to do this kind of cutting the DNA in, like as a pair of molecular scissors, if you like. Uh, but none of them do it uh, in uh, a way that's as predictable and easy to manipulate as CRISPR. So that's, I guess, really the unique thing about CRISPR. It's very controllable uh, without having any uh, you know, huge bioinformatic process going on. You can uh, design a, a guide RNA that will target your piece of DNA of interest. Now, once you've broken the strand there, uh, you can either leave it broken and, and hopefully uh, interfere with the function of the gene that you've targeted. So you might therefore knock it out and learn about its function, uh, or you could try and induce a specific kind of change. And so you can think in terms uh, of therapy, perhaps repairing a genetic defect that might already exist at that site. So there's these sort of two parallel processes that you could go down, gene disruption or perhaps even gene repair. And of course, uh, both of those have uh, great interest and value for us, but for very different reasons. And CRISPR has received definitely a lot of attention in the media and, sure. and elsewhere, especially now with the, with the Nobel Prize. Um, but even over the last five five years or so, um, but as, as you just mentioned, talents, for example, it's clearly not the only available method for gene editing. Um, do you see CRISPR as kind of doing away with everything else because of how precise and sort of simple it is? Or do you think there's still a role for all these other types of, of gene editing methods? Uh, there, there are certain things that CRISPR may struggle to do. For example, like if you were particularly interested in uh, mitochondrial DNA, for example, it may not be the best approach for those um, applications. So there may still be reasons why you would look at some others. But I think at the same time, although we think of CRISPR now as being the sort of pinnacle of what's been achieved in terms of genome editing, it would be naive 
to think that that was also the end point. It's still just one step on the road to better things. Even with CRISPR, as accurate as it is, it's not impossible to get what we call off-target effects. In other words, to accidentally cut some other part of the genome that wasn't our intended target. And also the fact that it does induce these double-stranded breaks in the DNA is potentially problematic. And actually, interestingly, particularly problematic, perhaps if we were talking about application in human gametes or embryos, uh, which seem to be particularly challenged when it comes to repairing these double-stranded breaks afterwards. So I think we can see further evolutions in the CRISPR methodology. And, you know, people are already talking about some of these. Uh, one worth mentioning maybe is prime editing, which essentially uses a Cas9 enzyme, which is uh, catalytically impaired. In other words, it doesn't cut the DNA anymore, but it can still carry uh, the enzyme to the right part of the genome by associating with a guide RNA. So the Cas9 still binds with the guide RNA, which we give to it. That still takes it to the part of the genome we're interested in, but it just doesn't cut the DNA there anymore. And we can attach other things to that Cas9 instead that do other jobs at that area, or, you know, do other interactions with that part of the DNA. So, for example, you can modify a nucleotide, you can change what base exists there, you can maybe uh, produce targeted insertions or deletions, as I mentioned, convert one base into another base, all without causing a double strand breakage. So in a way, that's a little bit more gentle on the genome and allows a whole host of other uh, modifications to be done. We very often associate, you were just mentioning about uh, using this in human embryos, we very often associate gene editing with assisted reproduction and IVF. What, what is the relationship between gene editing technologies and IVF? Well, there's, there's two. Uh, I guess one is on the pure basic research side of things. And, and we were fortunate enough to be involved as collaborators in a study with Kathy Nyakin's group at the Crick Institute in London uh, back in sort of 2016. Uh, and that led to a paper by Fogarty and colleagues in 2017, where they were particularly interested in understanding more about how genes work in very early human development. And their particular target was the OCT4 gene, which is a very interesting pluripotency gene expressed in the inner cell mass of developing embryos. So they sought to knock that gene out using CRISPR technology. And this was one of the first uh, ethically approved, licensed, uh, and carefully controlled studies uh, using CRISPR performed in human embryos uh, and, and really revealed some quite interesting information about the role of OCT4 in early human development and actually showed that there are differences in its role in human embryos compared to mouse embryos, for example, which gives you one of the arguments as to why you would actually do this in human embryos rather than in a model organism. Uh, that's one side of things, but I guess the one that most people uh, have been interested in and has generated the most ethical controversy is about the actual introduction of changes to the genome with the purpose of correcting a genetic defect. 
So there was a, a, an early study by Mar and colleagues from uh, Metalopov's group uh, that had suggested that perhaps you could correct a defect that was maybe present in the sperm. The actual correction probably uh, occurs in the embryo itself or in the egg after fertilization. Um, but uh, giving some positive indication that maybe it would be possible to correct genetic defects. Now, why do this in an embryo? Uh, well, if you have someone who's affected by a genetic disorder, many genetic disorders are affecting multiple organ systems. And so it can be very difficult to deliver a therapy based on CRISPR to um, across the whole body, really, to multiple cell types um, throughout an organism, uh, for, throughout an organ. Uh, so that, that can be quite challenging, you know, to correct, say, cystic fibrosis in the lungs, you know, what proportion of the cells do you need to actually correct? And are you really going to be able to deliver the reagents that the active components of CRISPR into enough cells to make a meaningful difference? And what about uh, organs that are more uh, sort of deep internal organ, organs, you know, they may be quite difficult uh, to correct in terms of, say, if you were trying to correct a cancer predisposition or something like that, uh, that was genetic in basis. So uh, one of the really attractive things about using an embryo is that you could, with almost certainty, uh, deliver CRISPR to all of the cells because it's only made perhaps if you do it at the zygote stage of one cell. So you could just inject that cell with the reagents and know that you had delivered CRISPR to 100% of the cells present. Of course, the flip side of that is that if you've delivered it to all the cells, then you've also delivered it to the cells that will become the germline of that individual. So you've created a, a heritable change to the uh, human uh, germline. And of course, that's what people have been very nervous about, um, the possibility that we may induce a change which isn't just here with us for one generation, but is here with us for every generation to come. Uh, of course, some people have an ethical problem with that, um, often with a religious basis, as a matter of course. Other people are quite accepting of the possibility that you would eliminate a serious genetic condition permanently. Now, obviously, every future generation therefore gets the same benefit without having to undergo the procedure. Um, but they still have the concern that what about if you do something wrong? What about if an error is made? Uh, that will also be with us for every generation to come within that family. And so, of course, quite rightly, uh, there's a lot of caution about um, using CRISPR in the context of an embryo where you may uh, interfere with the germline as well. Like, like every new technology, particularly when it comes to human reproduction, gene editing is not, not exempt of controversy, as you just said. And there's some ethical dilemma about several parts of, of what applies to gene editing. And I found it very interesting in, in 2018, the announcement of the first twin babies born after gene editing uh, happened in, in China. And it was interesting that this is a, a huge milestone, a huge leap scientifically, but simultaneously it was met with almost unanimous rebuke from the scientific and non-scientific community. 
Um, and in fact, the, the researcher responsible for this was actually sentenced to three years in prison. Um, what are some of the ethical considerations that are most important to you, not in the potential applications of human editing, like we were just talking about, but rather in conducting the research about gene editing in humans in an ethical and appropriate way? Yeah, it's uh, the whole controversy around that particular case of course I, I think you know it highlighted a lot of the things that can go wrong I mean in order to undertake those experiments quite a few ethical boundaries had to be breached um, in a way that was found later to be have been illegal so it goes to show that even when there are um laws and safeguards in place it's not impossible for those to be circumvented you know so there, there are clearly that that gives a, a big pause and cause for concern in that particular case of course the idea was that um dr hay will i guess actually eliminate the function of the ccr5 gene now this is a gene which hiv uh, essentially uses to enter uh, the cell and cause the infection. So the idea is that if you don't have the protein that that gene produces, then um, you can't be infected, or at least not so readily. Now, there's various issues with this, which highlight in some, I guess they can be instructive as to why we would or wouldn't do CRISPR in different uh, scenarios. I think the first thing is, there has to be a really good reason for doing this in the first place. The, the consequences of not doing it have to be severe, catastrophic. And in this case, that criterion was not met. Uh, it, it's relatively, there are relatively well-developed procedures for avoiding uh, HIV transmission when you're doing IVF. You can essentially, in inverted commas, wash the sperm uh, to wash away any viral particles uh, and therefore then use the, the sperm safely. So it's not really a very good argument if you're doing IVF for actually needing to do CRISPR to reduce the chances of infection uh, of the embryos. So, uh, you know, that was one issue since it was, uh, as far as I understand it, the male partners that were actually infected with HIV. Uh, so, you know, it's questionable about whether it needed to be done in the first place. Then you also have to have a very good biological understanding of what your intervention is actually going to cause. Now, while it may have been understood that eliminating this particular protein would reduce the risks of HIV infection, I don't think it was fully understood what other uh, repercussions there could be of eliminating this particular gene. And there is some data to suggest that uh, lifespan, for example, may be shortened in individuals who lack this gene. So while you may have uh, reduced the chances of HIV infection, you may have also had other um, uh, it potentially impactful uh, consequences of having done that and that you know, should have been fully appreciated and, and should be appreciated for any attempts to do such modifications uh, in the future so you know there, there are various things like that obviously any kind of forays into germline genome editing need to be very well researched controlled ethically approved there should ideally be public consultations about this as well. I guess a good paradigm for perhaps how you ought to do this kind of study could be the way that mitochondrial DNA diseases have been approached in the UK. Um, as you may be aware, a possible way of uh, 
avoiding transmission of mitochondrial DNA disorders. So these are disorders that affect the mitochondria. Uh, a way that you can stop those being transmitted is that uh, in the eggs of a carrier woman, of course, our mitochondria all come from our mothers because they're present in the cytoplasm of the egg. Uh, what you can do is remove uh, the meiotic spindle from that egg and transfer it uh, into the egg of an egg donor. So essentially you remove the egg donor's spindle and therefore all of her chromosomes and you replace them with the spindle and the chromosomes uh, of the patient. Uh, this means that you now have your patient's DNA, her chromosomes, all the genes that make her what she is, but in a healthy cytoplasmic context. Now, you know, that's been sometimes reported in the media as a rather alarming three-person baby kind of approach. Um, but in reality, really the only um, third-person contribution is these very small number of mitochondrial genes that really don't affect your personality, physical characteristics, or, or anything else. Um, but, it, it, you know, that was seen as ethically quite challenging, and in the UK, the pathway to allowing this to be done uh, involved an extensive public consultation uh, and debate that was held publicly. A lot of educational material was put out there so people could really make an informed decision about whether this was a good thing or maybe something that they didn't want. Was it a, a risky thing or something where the scientists had done enough background work to reassure that risks were minimal or at least um, reasonable given the potential benefits. And then that was followed then with political debate. It was debated in parliament. And finally, uh, law was introduced to actually permit this. Uh, so, you know, it followed a very stepwise and careful procedure in order to actually then get this allowed. Uh, and also at the same time, of course, checks and balances were put in place so that it would be controllable as well uh, and that there would be sufficient oversight from independent regulators. Uh, you know, so, yeah, I think that that can show you that this sort of thing, even the most ethically challenging medical interventions can be managed potentially. Now, of course, I, I can't necessarily say that that would be the case in every single country. You know, there is the risk that there are parts of the world where maybe regulation uh, is not so stringent. And so I'm not suggesting that that means that uh, we can take our eye off the ball and expect this to not be abused anywhere. Uh, but certainly, I think we can expect that we would be able to potentially use this in a appropriate way. It's very interesting you point that out because I, I kind of think the same way about a lot of what's happening today in an entirely unrelated area, which is the whole COVID-19 vaccination, where a lot of the science and the regular sort of scientific process and research process has been brought out to the public. And we have a lot of uh, public scrutiny on how the research is going, on what is acceptable and what risks are not acceptable. And it's it, it's interesting you pose it that way because I, we will end up having a lot more public weighing in on what we do is acceptable or not, since it is eventually the public who it will affect and who it will serve. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's with any big scientific advance, especially one that maybe pushes some boundaries like this and pushes you know, our, our preconceived notions of how things are or should be. I think it's so important that we bring the public along with us. It's, if, 
yeah, it's very tempting as a scientist to rush headlong on, you know, you get excited by a project, you get excited by the potential of what can be done. Uh, but, you know, as the Chinese case showed us, we have to be very careful to understand the difference between fame and infamy, really. <laughs> you know, we, we, we want to be servants of, of the public and to deliver things which are valuable to them, not give them things that actually they never ask for and don't actually want, uh, yeah, just for our own glorification. So it's really important that we remain engaged all the time and that we make sure that we are giving something that's perceived as valuable, that people want. I think there's huge potential with CRISPR. I think, of course, we're going to see it initially with somatic cells that can be extracted from the body, treated, and then replaced. We're seeing great innovations happening in things like sickle cell anemia and other things where you can quite readily extract some cells to be uh, modified, corrected, and replaced. Uh, but ultimately, it looks very likely that, that there will be a place for its utilization in things like human embryos, even with the change of the gene, uh, the, the, the germline. Um, certainly, this has been the opinion of various bodies, um, such as the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, that you know, it's, it's their whole remit, their whole uh, modus operandi is to, to look at these things in great detail in an impartial way and try and really understand whether there's uh, benefits most of the medical societies have come out with statements appreciating that there there probably is a role for this, at least in some extreme cases. So we'll just have to see how things go along those lines. Certainly a lot of work has to be done in terms of assessing the, the safety of these uh, technologies and, uh, and to see really how efficacious they can be. There, there's one more thing on the topic of safety I wanted to, mm. to talk with you about just very briefly. When I was doing some reading for our talk, I so I can be at like you know 1% of your level, I read that in 2016, gene editing was actually added to the annual worldwide threat assessment of the U.S. intelligence community, uh, interestingly under weapons of mass destruction. In its most recent version, in 2019, the U.S. Intelligence Committee report uh, still shows gene editing on that list now under disruptive technologies because of its potential to enhance or degrade human performance. Um, can you comment a little bit on sort of the societal point of view? What, what can you say about this? That's a, that's a new one on me. I hadn't, I hadn't heard about it. So it's addition to that particular list, um, <laughs> but that's, that's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I think we always um, do tend to to to, to put uh, some of these these really scary things onto these lists, these new innovations. I mean, you can think about the same thing happening, you know, with nuclear energy. You know, and I guess yeah, you can you can see why um, genome editing could end up on that list. I mean, it could be used for the manipulation of other organisms, especially microorganisms, in such ways that you could produce probably deadly strains of things uh, but uh, it's certainly in terms of enhancement of humans I, I guess you could imagine certain rather scary sci-fi kind of uh, applications there um, but I mean the the reality of where it is is probably quite different at the moment that's not to say that we shouldn't keep a close eye on on how these things are being used but but right now I mean obviously the medical application is where all of the focus really is. 
I think you have to bear in mind that if you're talking about things like actual enhancement, uh, not only would that be uh, sort of forbidden in, in almost all societies uh, where there's any kind of regulation, yeah. like I say, it's, it's, it's not impossible to imagine that that uh, crazy things could happen. But uh, I think that that you can imagine it would only be restricted to um, very strange and unusual circumstances. Now, perfect. So let's go back to to actual applications and what we can actually do with this technology. Um, I'd like you to walk us through kind of some of the previous uses of gene editing that have been very useful to us. You've touched base upon earlier on the research potential for creating animal models and so forth. Um, tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, I mean, in terms of creating animal models, um, I mean, it's one of those things where really to understand something, you often have to eliminate its function. You know, uh, if you, uh, I guess, want to understand how an engine works, you know, maybe if you remove the carburetor, you can get an idea of what that was actually doing by seeing how the engine now starts to fail and the way in which it fails. And you can do similar things at a cellular level by removing individual genes and see how the cell or the organism uh, then uh, copes with that, what, what happens to it as a result. Um, you know, in a way, it's, it's uh, maybe sometimes a bit of a sledgehammer to crack a nut in that you're doing something quite radical to see an effect, but it has been historically very instructive in terms of genetics, where just by looking at the sequence of a gene, uh, okay, we might be able to predict the sequence of amino acids that uh, will be in the protein produced, but then actually to understand, uh, to predict the function and role of that protein, uh, you know, we've been rather poor at doing that. And you know, while things are always improving, we, we still remain uh, a little bit um, unable to really predict the biological function uh, fully. Uh, so yeah, uh, you know, it, certainly knocking out genes is of great importance to then understand their function, and how they're working um, at, at cellular and organismal levels. Uh, in terms of actually making modifications that are useful to us, you mentioned sort of genetically modified organisms, you know, genetically modified crops. Again, of course, this has been a, an area that's been controversial, an area where the media has come up with certain names for things that haven't necessarily been helpful, like in the case of genetically modified uh, foodstuffs, Frankenstein foods has been, been one that's been popular with the UK press. Yeah. In fact, going back to the Nobel Prize that we spoke about earlier, I think there's a letter signed by, I think it's close to 200 Nobel uh, Prize winners supporting GMO crops and how they can be very, very useful in, in other parts of the world as well. Yeah. I, I Regarding applications of this technology to humans specifically, um, we've spoken about some, some specific things earlier. Um, I wanted to ask you about some of the recent papers in the last four or five years or so um, regarding gene editing to address not specific gene corrections, but rather uh, trisomies and the elimination of whole extra chromosomes. It's an interesting area. Uh, certainly, again, something that's not, I think, ready for prime time now. But one of the things that we noticed in the study with Kathy Nyakan, you know, back in 2016, was that Kathy had been really successful at targeting her gene of interest. She had managed to cut that gene 
and then the cellular machinery had kicked in just as you'd expect it to, to try and repair the cut. And what often happens in CRISPR is when that cut is repaired, a few uh, nucleotides are either deleted or inserted. And so it disrupts the gene and the gene doesn't work anymore. That's exactly what, what we wanted to see. And that's what we saw in many cases in these human embryos where she'd knocked out the OPT4 gene. But the interesting thing that we saw at that time also was that there were a surprising number of embryonic cells that had actually just simply failed to repair the break at all. Now, this is something that you'd almost never see in a somatic cell. You know, somatic cells have well-evolved mechanisms that have, you know, been developed over billions of years of evolution to keep the genome stable. When it receives an insult, like a break in the DNA, it repairs it with great efficiency. And so to see so many cells where this wasn't really happening was a bit of a surprise, although perhaps it shouldn't have been, because we've known for quite a number of years now, uh, more than a decade, that human embryos during those first few mitotic cell divisions do display a high degree of genetic instability. And we think we often see this in terms of mosaicism. In other words, you might have a normal egg and a normal sperm and they come together and they, the embryo starts dividing. It has normal numbers of chromosomes in its cells, of course, but then one of those cells makes a mistake and ends up chromosomally abnormal. And so now you have a mixture of normal and abnormal cells. So this is mosaicism. So that's a kind of genetic instability, again, that you wouldn't really see in any somatic cells other than those of a tumor, uh, which also often become genetically unstable. We've also often seen in human embryos as well, chromosome breakage. So a bit of a chromosome has broken off and either then become duplicated or, or lost altogether. So there is this kind of underlying uh, instability. And this is exactly what we were seeing when we were using CRISPR to break the DNA of the OP4 gene, that some of these just weren't getting repaired. Um, so this suggests a couple of things. First, beware if you're going to try and do genome editing in human embryos, because you actually may end up introducing a defect that's even worse. The other possibility is, well, what about if you really cut up a chromosome that was maybe surplus to requirements. In other words, if you had a trisomy, an extra copy of a chromosome, which would actually probably cause the embryo to fail to implant, miscarry, or in rarer occasions, maybe even produce a child with very significant congenital abnormalities. Uh, could we actually cut a chromosome into pieces and then essentially lose it from the cell in that way? Uh, so that's uh, an interesting possibility which has been proposed. Uh, at the moment, I think it would be very premature to try anything like that clinically, simply because we don't really know what the effects would be. You'd be having to probably use CRISPR at multiple sites within the chromosome. That's okay. And in fact, it's one of the advantages of CRISPR over some of the earlier genome editing methodologies is that you can essentially multiplex it, uh, attack several sites simultaneously. But with each site you attack, of course, there may, be, there may come a small risk of an off-target effect. So by doing this at several sites, you may increase the risks of seeing uh, some kind of off-target uh, uh, um, problem where you might uh, interfere with a bit of the genome you hadn't intended to. Um, the other thing is, how will the cell actually process all of these breaks that you've put in? The hope would be that it will just clear that chromosome. 
And we have seen that happen sometimes in some of the embryonic cells uh, where we've uh, used CRISPR in a research context to break the DNA. Sometimes that whole chromosome has become lost. So that can happen. But the problem is it doesn't always happen. Sometimes you end up with a kind of uh, impaired chromosome where you haven't got rid of the whole chromosome, but you've got rid of part of it. And so that kind of thing actually may be even worse than the thing that you're trying to correct. So we're going to have to do a lot more work before we know whether that uh, approach is safe. Uh, I, I have some thoughts that maybe if you did it in the right way, um, it could be quite useful as a therapeutic, but an awful lot of groundwork will have to be done to prove whether that is indeed the case. That's fantastic. And finally, before we finish, what is your sort of overall view on the future and gene editing in humans? What do you think we will actually be doing in five, 10 years from a sort of more clinical than research perspective? Well, I mean, I think we're right to be very excited about the technology. It's an interesting time to be involved in this area of molecular biology because it's seeing a lot of development from a lot of very smart people around the world. And I think with that big combined scientific effort, we can quite imagine that we will, within the next years, see a highly efficient genome editing technology that by efficient, I mean, succeeds in targeting exactly the part that you want and inducing the change that's required there without off-target effects. So I think we might not be there now, but I can imagine that we will get there, that we will have a tool that will allow you to uh, change the sequence of a gene, perhaps correcting a disease-causing mutation back to the same sequence that everybody else in the world has at that particular position. Uh, so removing a serious genetic defect from a family with a degree of permanence. While that may be still seen as ethically challenging at the moment, I think in time, uh, that is the sort of thing that people will be quite accepting of. We have to remember that in the early days of organ donation, um, some people were alarmed by the prospect that a person could have someone else's heart beating in their chest. But of course, that's something that we don't view as being sort of Frankenstein-like anymore. We don't view it as being particularly ethically challenging. It's something that we most, for the most part, I think most people think, well, of course you would do that if you can. And really, it's a question of should the genes really be considered very differently to that. At the end of the day, they are also things which are uh, serving a function to keep us uh, alive and healthy. Uh, so uh, I, th I think you know, clearly, again, we have to educate, make sure people understand why this is beneficial um, and give reassurances as to uh, how it can be controlled. Um, but I, I would be very hopeful that this can be a really useful um, addition to our clinical repertoire that will be extremely beneficial for people in generations to come. Dagan, thank you so much. This has been this has been great. So so insightful to be to be talking to you about this. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. No, a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on, Andres. I, I really appreciate it. This has been another episode of Fertilipod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. 
Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Thank you.